Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about coal miners in the Navajo Nation who are dealing with black lung and other health issues. I feel it every day when I get up. I feel it when I'm walking. I feel it when I'm when I'm uh, working. Then a Colorado author has just won the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime for her story about working as a private investigator on the first ever Title IX sexual assault case. This case set a precedent, a legal precedent, that the school would have to bear some responsibility under Title IX. That never happened before. Then we head to Delta County on Colorado's western slope to visit a senior prom. It was held at a senior living centre and it even had the crowning of the prom king and queen. You're the queen, Evelyn. I'm the queen, no. Oh. <laughs> Hail the Lord. From the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, it's the Regional Roundup. Many retired Navajo coal miners say they're suffering from black lung disease and other health problems as a result of working in mines in the Navajo Nation. It's widely known that uranium mining in the Navajo Nation has led to lasting health problems for miners. The impact of coal mining has been less explored. Chris Clements of KSJD has been reporting on the issue. Hey Chris, thanks so much for talking with me today. No problem. So take us back right to the beginning. How did you actually first find out about what was happening with Navajo miners and black lung? So when I first got to KSJD, um, you know, they all told me to be on Facebook all the time um, because it's sort of the tool or mechanism for communicating with specific pockets of people just spread all across the the four corners. So that's exactly what I did. I've just been on Facebook all the time and I've been kind of, you know, joining different groups. And eventually I just happened to see on there one day that there was a flyer for a, a meeting on black lung disease near Farmington, New Mexico. And it was, it, was, um, it was done by Orphelia Thomas, who is an employee at Positive Nature Home Care, which primarily helps uranium miners. But in this case, she was hosting meetings um, on black lung, you know, spreading the word to the community, to miners, that they are eligible for benefits, some of them. Some of these miners, they stated that when they were working that, you know, they really didn't know what was going on. These miners know conversational English. They don't know the depth and the severity part of any medical issues that they may they have questions on. So a lot of them said that, you know, they never told us this. They never told us this. So tell us a little bit more about Orphelia and how she got involved in this, because it sounds like there's not a lot of information that's out there at all for miners in the Navajo Nation, particularly around the issue of black lung. You know, according to Orphelia, some miners approached her, actually, um, and asked if she'd be willing to. Um, they, they were miners that she knew from her, her work with uranium miners, and they asked her if she'd be willing to help out in, in this way. And 
Um, luckily for us, you know, her her employers at the Positive Nature said yes, and so they they've been having meetings and they they've been kind of getting bigger and bigger as they as they go on. The next one is uh, scheduled for June, and she's told me that she's hoping the the president of the Navajo Nation, Bunai Gren, will be at this next one. So Orphelia herself is so interesting because she herself is from the Navajo Nation and she speaks the Navajo language. Talk a little bit about the need to have information in Navajo language itself and and what that means. Yeah, I mean, language is a huge barrier in terms of getting this information out there. As you might imagine, a lot of folks, they only speak Navajo. Orphelia speaks Navajo fluently, so she's been translating this kind of complex information about benefits uh, federal benefits into the Navajo language so that people can, minors can follow along. Um, yeah, without people like her dedicated to doing that sort of thing. Um, and it's a monumental task because, you know, as you might imagine, a lot of things don't easily translate. But, but you know, that's really just uh, sort of one of the many barriers that exist to preventing folks who may or may not have black lung from ever accessing benefits. Well, let's talk about that because there are so many layers to this story. You mentioned their language and that in and of itself being a barrier. But when you look at the Navajo Nation, there are often very few other options when it comes to jobs. But also it's a community that's severely medically underserved as well. And so all of this is leading to a lot of complexity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's been really hard at times to sort out the it's it's quite bureaucratic um, how they've decided to divvy up each state's handling of black lung um, and, and of minors health care in general. So there's each state in our area, Arizona, Utah and New Mexico have a grantee that is sort of the clinic that's uh, designated to help process these claims and and get people the benefits that they need. And then that's really just, you know, one small part of it. You mentioned that they're medically underserved. And I would really, I, I would agree with that. And I would also say that, you know, just based on a, an interview I did with a minor, a former minor named Alex Osif um, last week, he was telling me that folks in the mine, miners like himself were trained to be EMS, you know, for the mine specifically, because there's just no one else close enough to help um, in times of crisis. So these people, these minors who, you know, have otherwise no real experience or background in, in sort of uh, medicine or, or health, they were trained in how to be EMS. And I just think that that kind of almost illustrates part of the, yeah, the problem with logistics of de- helping people and, you know, who do this kind of work. Well, Alex is such an interesting person, and I know he works for this organization, Canyonlands, and we'll talk more about them because that's a, a, one of the health clinics that's really trying to help the miners and do screenings. But tell us about what that tour of the mining area was like when you went out and about with Alex and, and some of the complexity he's dealing with personally because he used to work for the mine. He has that relationship that was his career in many ways. He's helping others now navigate this issue around black lung and compensation for that and sort of straddling both realities. So take us back to what happened when you went on the tour of the mine with Alex recently. We, we, you know, we had a plan to go tour this mine, the Kayenta mine owned by Peabody Western Coal Company, um, which shut down in 2019. And and Alex uh, worked there and also at the Black Mesa mine. Uh, which is right next to the Kayanta mine. And, you know, when we made the plan to go do this, I 
I assumed by tour he meant he would we would walk around and he would point out various things and I would kind of hold my microphone up and and but it turns out that you know the mine of these mines are are massive they're truly gigantic and they're often built or around or directly next to you know places where people already live which is a really interesting um, component to all this and it really does kind of just add to the complexity it was a surreal experience you know you you're traveling around and it's essentially just fields of of where there once were pinyon and juniper sort of totally cleared that are being filled with dirt and topsoil and and you know beginning the process of essentially reclamation which means the mine is being decommissioned but it's a bittersweet moment i think for alex because on one hand you know he's a black lung benefits counselor and that's his job now is his role is really to help miners like himself who may have it may have that disease on the other hand, like you said, you know, these mines, they're the providers of some of the highest paying jobs in the Navajo Nation or anywhere in the Four Corners for that matter. And they're also sort of a boon to the community, the local communities. They provide free water sources and all sorts of different um, amenities. Um, but I guess the question I and others are asking at this point is sort of, is that worth, you know, what's happened given where people are at now? And I think it's a comp- that's a tough one. I think Alex is still very much working through his feelings on that himself. And again, like I said, the money was good. The offerings of retirement when you were at age was good, if they offered it. They offered incentives for early retirement to a lot of the company people. They all grasped on it. I want to talk about that meeting that you went to back in April, April 7th, and this was in Upper Fruitland in New Mexico. And this was the meeting where Orphelia organized it. And she actually was speaking in Navajo at that meeting. What was going on on that day? Well, it was uh, it was really cold. I remember very windy and it's it was held uh, in a gymnasium near the Upper Fruitland Chapter House in, in Upper Fruitland, New Mexico, which is kind of right on the edge or the cusp of the Navajo Nation. Before the meeting started, I was talking to miners and one of them, uh, um, a miner named David, he was telling me that just, you know, just 10 minutes away from where this meeting was being held there, there's just a massive mine known as the Navajo Mine owned by um, the Navajo Nation at this point. All these mesas, there's people that live down this way, and there's the mine pit is like this, going south. And then... Which mine is that? The, 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 the Navajo. Yeah. And I just remember kind of it never really fully hit until I left the meeting and realized that logistically, yeah, just in terms of where I was, we were all just sort of having that mine, that, that meeting next to the mine. I, yeah, it just really speaks volumes about like sort of the prevalence of these these mines and how sort of influential and important they are to the communities even still as they're being decommissioned. Um, and, you know, in addition to him, there were there were a, v- a variety of healthcare organizations, like you mentioned Canyonlands Healthcare was there and, and Alex Osif, um, he, he was there. You know, everyone kind of talked about uh, just the, the various aspects of getting benefits and, you know, how this process works, because it's not as simple as, you know, you get tested positive for black lung and then you get benefits. The truth is a lot more complex. Really what it involves is you getting tested again and again on almost a yearly basis, just going forward kind of in perpetuity uh, until such time as, you know, they, they determine that you either don't have any black lung or 
or you pass away from the disease. And as we find out more and more about the claims process, it's just sort of been a, yeah, just a really almost otherworldly sort of topsy-turvy situation. But it was it was an eye-opening meeting, and I I was just kind of shocked about how many people were there, too, I think. There was about, you know, 30 or, or 40 people, Not you know, yeah, it was it was kind of a just a very eye-opening experience, I guess. Well, I know that one of the folks from Canyonlands Healthcare, Michelle Carter, she's a nurse who leads the Black Lung Clinic program. She actually spoke to you about some of those barriers to even accessing benefits. So there will be a fight for every single potential from the operator's standpoint. So they're looking to dispute a claim from any potential movement forward. You mentioned earlier that when you took the tour of a mine recently with Alex, that it was owned by Peabody, and that's one of the owners. And there are several mines, but there's also a change in ownership around some of the mines. And that can actually create problems in terms of tracing liability. Can you talk a little bit about that in the context of mining in the Navajo Nation? Yeah, so I'll use the Navajo mine as an example. Um, it's a pretty good example of this. Uh, you know, their their history is right on their their page, their website, um, and anyone can look it up. It's it's quite complex. It really involves, like you said, sort of the mine changing hands or ownership um, numerous times throughout its history, and it's still running today, by the way. Um, but but for instance, in the Navajo mine, it was you know originally owned by I think Utah International, um, and then they merged with General Electric who, you know, sold the company or the mine to, um, to uh, BHP. And then sort of BHP did its own mergers. But really what the point is with all these um, different owners is that it makes determining who's really responsible for any given miner's disease almost impossible. And that's really that's kind of the insidious point, I think, is just for companies to come in, you know, sort of exist and 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 make earn you know a profit and then and then eventually leave um with sort of little to no fanfare and um that that's going to make determining yeah who specifically owned the mine or who operated it at the time for these specific miners who have black lung nearly uh, it's going to be a very difficult task um but you know we're, we're keeping at it we we're hopeful um and really like the, the truth with with a lot of these mines is that there is still a ton of money to be made in energy in general and um, energy companies in the Navajo Nation. There's just been widespread issues with um, with folks being taken advantage of and and their health compromised. So what's next? You mentioned there that there's another meeting that's going to be happening in June and they're hopeful that the president of the Navajo Nation will actually show up to that one. But Aside from that, what is next, whether it's with the medical assessment of this, the the benefit claims? Can you give us a sense of what's going to be happening next in this story? You know, the the truth is it's it's a bit of a bleak prediction, actually. Um, according to Michelle Carter at Canyonlands and Alex Osif, um, they really think, and in addition to others in the Four Corners, that that this problem is specifically in terms of black lung and the kind of emphysema and asthma that you see when people are working in mines for long periods of time is only going to continue to get worse, um, especially for a specific group of miners who worked in the mines from the period 1970 to 1977. Because it was during that time that 
laws around wearing respirators weren't fully implemented. And it's that cohort of minors, according to Alex, um, that is currently suffering the most and who we expect will continue to come forward as their, their own specific cases continue to develop. Well, we very much appreciate all the reporting that you have been doing on this issue and continue to do. People can find all your coverage of Black Lung in the Navajo Nation amongst the Navajo miners online at ksjd.org and stay tuned for a lot more reporting. Chris Clements, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Maeve. You are listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. I'm Maeve Conran. In 2001, a female college student was sexually assaulted by a group of college football players and recruits at the University of Colorado in Boulder. A lawsuit ensued and more victims came forward. The lawsuit argued that the university was contributing to a rape culture that put women in danger. The case was the first Title IX sex assault case in history, and it changed college campuses around the country. This case set a precedent, a legal precedent, that the school would have to bear some responsibility under Title IX. That's author Erica Krauss, who worked as a private investigator for the plaintiff's attorney on that case. Her new memoir tells that story and it weaves in the story of her own experience of abuse as a child. Krauss's book, Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation, just won the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime Book. She spoke about the book on KGNU's Radio Book Club back in June 2022. Here's Krauss reading from her book, describing how she first became a private eye. In the fall of 2002, I was living in the front range foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains, in a small city that boasted a university and a swarm of tech startups. I met an attorney at a bookstore there because we were both reaching for the same Paul Auster novel. We withdrew, laughed, chatted briefly about the author and books, and then he started telling me about his life. He wasn't complaining, just reporting. He said, I'm a partner in the kind of law firm I've always dreamed of, but I'm beginning to hate it. The man looked like a lawyer. He was about 20 years older than me, my height, in a cornflower blue button-down shirt that matched his eyes so exactly he must have bought it for that purpose. But his hunched shoulders betrayed misery, and his arms flapped at his sides like he had no use for them anymore but didn't know how to shed them. The man said, or maybe I'm just sick of it, my job, my life. I don't know what I'm do- if what I'm doing has any meaning anymore. I'm thinking about leaving my law firm, maybe even leaving the practice of law altogether. Then he stopped, shocked. Wait, he said. What? I've never told anybody this stuff, he said. It's okay, I said. But he scanned the stacks, unable to meet my gaze, and his voice cracked. He said, what did you do? What's happening? I said, don't worry. People tell me secrets all the time. I don't. I don't even know who you are. He jabbed an index finger in the air between us. He said, my partners can't know. This is confidential stuff. I said, I won't tell anyone. He still looked upset, so I said, it's not you, it's just my face. It does that. People tell me things. I'm sorry. People tell you things like that? The man's expression slowly changed as he regarded me, as if I had suddenly gone on clearance. Then he said, come work for me. What? I said. I'm offering you a job. 
He now looked relaxed, expansive. He leaned back against the books in the B section. What kind of job, I asked. I was afraid he was about to say something dirty. But instead he said, you can investigate my lawsuits for me, PI work, talk to witnesses, get them to open up. Author Erica Krauss reading from her book, Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation. The PI trade has never been viewed as very classy. In some ways, mine was you know, a little better because I, I was investigating a lawsuit instead of you know, hiding behind buildings and trying to snap pictures of cheating spouses, right? So it was a little different. But um, there was this feeling of, of playing dirty. You're loosening people up with alcohol and free food and tell me more and I'm paying so much attention to you. And then uh, and they'll tell you more than they want to tell you. That's what I was paid to do. I was paid to get information and hand it over to the lawyers. So it, it was morally dicey. And I had a lot of moral quandaries about it invading people's privacy, and also just trying to persuade people to do something they might not have wanted to do. I mean, for it to end up, say, in a legal case, those people who are telling you the stories, they would then have to be deposed, right? I mean, it's just part of the process. You're not going, gotcha, now you've got to end up in court. What's the legalities of that and how private investigations and the kind of conversations you were saying about applying people with alcohol, I mean, what you were doing was, say, maybe meeting someone in a bar maybe right. let's have a beer in a, in a casual situation I'll buy you a burger and then you have these conversations but then how does that then end up as part of the case what are the, the intervening steps uh, yeah so again you're, you're right you know just telling me something doesn't mean that I can, I'm going to testify in court and say they said this and they say no I didn't say that and it's going to even mean anything right um, so from from there Actually, I would usually just dump all the information on the attorneys and they'd say, wow, okay, we can use this, this and this. And they'd come back to me and say, okay, talk to them again and try and get them interested in being involved. You know, so there's a lot of persuasion involved in the job as well. You know, I'd talk about how important the case was and how what they knew and what they had experienced could possibly change things. And then from there, you have to persuade them to possibly sign an affidavit and or, you know, appear in court and, and then it goes from there. So what ultimately did result from the case? I mean, there was the legal decision that found the university guilty of violation of Title IX, these federal protections. But did it change anything more broadly? Absolutely. It changed a lot, actually. Uh, the NCAA instituted new rules around recruiting to keep people safer. This case set a precedent, a legal precedent, that a woman or a man or anybody was sexually assaulted by a college football player, college college athlete, actually, um, that the school would have to bear some responsibility under Title IX. That never happened before. Before that, it was just a criminal affair, and criminal cases are decided by the DA's office. And then and some DAs just our football fans and decide not to not to prosecute, right? So now it became a civil rights issue. It is a, it's a Title IX uh, violation. So that encouraged a lot more people to come forward and enabled many, many more cases. And also it created this uh, position that you'll see now in universities of Title IX coordinator. That position really wasn't around very much before then, but now um, universities are more proactive in making sure that these violations do not progress further than they already did and um, protecting people's rights. Erica Krauss is speaking on KGNU's Radio Book Club in June 2022. Her memoir, Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation, has just won the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime. 
you can find the full interview at news.kgnu.org. Just look for the Radio Book Club. You're listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. We finish out today's show with a trip to Delta on Colorado's western slope. It's prom season for high schools across the region. However, many of today's senior citizens never attended the annual Spring Fling during their own high school experience. One senior living residence in western Colorado is giving its residents a second chance to dance. KVNF's Lisa Young was on the dance floor at Crossroads Senior Living in Delta and she brings us this story. Crossroads Senior Living in Delta held a senior prom for its seniors. Amber Lorimore, Director of Activities, has the details. So we are having our first annual Crossroads Senior Prom and we have decked out our dining room and all of our residents are just dressed to the nines, staff too. Um, We had a tradition for years of going to the Delta High School to do our senior prom with Region 10 and COVID um, and all of its multifaceted (laughs) has decided you know it's still a little hard to get together so with region 10 um, canceling you know due to lack of volunteers or sponsors and time um, we decided we're gonna do our own. Lorimer said she was surprised to find out that a number of the residents never attended a senior prom including my own mother Loretta Young. Well, I grew up in Hereford, Texas, and they didn't have senior proms. We had a senior night, but we didn't have a dance because they didn't believe in dancing. So so we had our family, our moms and dads gave us a senior prom, and that's when we had our dance. Nice. Naomi, how about you? Tell me about uh, your experiences in high school with the senior prom. I never went to senior senior prom because we were poor and my mom wouldn't let me dance. So are you going to get out and dance here today? I have no idea. Spoiler alert, Naomi did get to dance. One of the staff members was gracious enough to take her out on the floor and, well, kind of cut the rug. Even though Naomi and Loretta missed out on a senior prom in high school, certainly didn't stop them from singing an old Elvis Presley favorite. I had to help him out a little bit. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, crying all the time. Ain't nothing but a hound dog, crying all the time. You never caught a rabbit? Yeah, you never caught a rabbit. I ain't no friend of mine. And they're not as pretty as you are. The day included some refreshments and decorations and everyone dressing up for the special occasion held in the afternoon with the curtains pulled so it felt a little bit more like it was nighttime. Laura Moore, to the thrill of the crowd, announced husband and wife as the king and queen for Crossroads.
Both Cal and Evelyn were crowned king and queen, and it seemed like Evelyn was pretty thrilled about the fact that she was the queen. You're the queen, Evelyn. I'm the queen, no. Oh. <laughs> Hail the Lord. And this is what Cal had to say about being crowned king for the day. How does it feel, Cal? Are you having a good time? Yeah. <laughs> Reporting for KVNF and getting ready to dance, I'm Lisa Young. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KVNF in Paonia, KGNU in Boulder and Denver, and KSJD in Cortez, Colorado for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. <laughs>